You're listening to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. In this week's episode, O'Reilly's Max Locum chats with Rajiv Maheswaran, CEO of Second Spectrum. Rajiv talks about machine learning applications in sports and the importance of context when measuring stats. He also talks about the future of real-time in-game analytics. In the second segment, Mac chats with distillery chief scientist Claudia Perlich about how and why data is undermining established metrics in advertising and how data will shape metrics in the future. She also talks about why advertisers might have brought the ad blocker explosion upon themselves. First, here's Rajiv. Enjoy the show. How is machine learning currently being used in the sports world? I mean, is it early days or is it a mature space right now? Well, it's definitely in its early days. Uh, sort of, we're starting to get data sets where machine is really not only important but vital. Uh, but it's already being used quite heavily. So, I mean, I know that professional NBA teams are using results of machine learnings to uh, machine learning to change their strategies in playoff games and playoff series. So, it's really uh, you know great to see that uh, machine learning can have such an impact so quickly. What does machine learning allow now that wasn't possible before? So, you know, one of the things, there's a lot of things, parts of the game, the basketball, pick and rolls, dribble handoffs, um, that coaches really care about, about analyzing how it works on offense, how to guard them. And before big data and machine learning, basically people watch the games and mark them. Mm. And so it turns out that people are pretty bad at marking them accurately, and they also miss a ton of stuff. So right now, machine learning basically tells coaches, this is how many pick and rolls these two players uh, have had over the course of the season, how often they do all the different variations, what they're good at, what they're bad at. So coaches can really find tendencies that can help them sort of play offense, play defense far more efficiently based off of machine learning. And the data set is far bigger and far more accurate than the way they used to do it, which is basically people watching it and saying, this is what happened. Has the work that your company has done changed the way that you personally watch games? You know, completely. Is I think that I can't. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's so much <laughs> richer it, now. It yeah. uh, it's so much richer. So you know, you know, we're involved in the science of moving dots, and we have a lot of data visualizations that help us see the game the way the computer sees the game. So there's all these sort of trails of moving dots and dynamic slices of the courts and matchup lines. And now, when I watch the game. I see all those lines and all those numbers floating around. But the cool thing is we've started to work with broadcasters, national broadcasters uh, like ESPN and Fox, and we've created data visualizations that actually augment those things on on video, and now they're actually used in the last year's playoffs. And so the thing that was in our heads is now actually on TV, and fans get to see that view uh, as well. So it's really exciting. Are there times where you're watching the game and you wish that some of those visualizations were available to oh, you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But I think it's going to come. I think within a couple of years, uh, fans are going to get access to those visualizations um, and it's going to change the way we see the game. It seems like it's become fairly seamless, too. And the example I have is uh, my my local baseball team, they've always got the strike zone up and, yep. and I can see it. Yep. And then if I'm watching a national national broadcast, it won't be there. I'm like, we're, I, know. I, I need that. I mean, I'm it's, used to that. Exactly. It's, I think like it adds to the experience and once you have it, you can't go back. And so we've seen a couple of those things and we can't go back. And I think once everybody sees these things, they won't be able to go back either. Do you have a favorite stat? So I do. Uh, it's one of the ones we recently came up with. One of the things we were able to do is in basketball, you know, you can always count how well you shot. I made seven out of 12 shots. I made eight out of nine. I made one out of seven. That's that's me. Um, I gave myself <laughs> one. Um, but the, the thing is that you never counted how difficult the shot was. So in reality, you know that there are players who take tough shots, but are really good shooters and others who are basically take really easy shots, but not are, aren't that great a shooter. So we have a couple of metrics, ones that tells you 
how hard your shots are, and one what your shooting ability is. And I really like the shooting ability one because it sort of it it can help you find sort of secretly good players. It's like oh, I always knew that guy was talented because、mm-hmm. and the fact that they were talented were hidden by the fact that they were taking hard shots, either because. They were forced to, or because perhaps their judgment wasn't the best. But I think that the fact that we can sort of separate things that were confounded, like shot quality and shooting ability, into into shooting, we can separate that again and sort of give you all kinds of new insights.、Uh, and so, for me, I, lo- I love looking at that. Now, that's not publicly available yet, but it will be soon. Is shot quality in that case determined just by placement on the floor, or does defense factor in? So, defense、that? is a big deal. So, I think you know, I think. What we're doing is match having the machine match human in, intuition. So if I'm watching a game, I know that you know the shot is harder. You know if I'm further away, if I have multiple defenders, if they're close, if they're closing in on me, if I'm dribbling, you know the type of shot I'm taking. So as a human, I watch this and I have an intuition about it. But now by giving all that、uh, that that data to the machine, it can make a predictor that actually matches our intuition and goes beyond it because it can actually put a number onto what our intuition tells us. And so, as you see these numbers floating around, the nice thing is that like it matches your in- intuition. I know that as the defender comes in and out, or as the player starts dribbling, like it gets harder or easier, and and it's really cool to watch that. Has that type of analysis led to things like、uh, sort of the uptick we've seen in corner threes in basketball? So I think that、um, what the the uptick in corner threes has already come because people just realize like, hey, that's a really valuable shot, and、sure. it's. Closer than the other threes, and so it sort of it makes a lot of sense to take that. I think the kind of analysis we're doing is that, for example, we can tell you that not every corner three is the same. There are really easy corner threes, which are you're standing there, it's a catch and shoot, no one's near you, or you're dribbling and you step back and you、uh, launched a corner three, and we should not treat those two the same. So our ability, basically, to find shot quality and shooting ability, lets a team find perhaps a hidden. A hidden three corner three point shooter who was really talented, but was taking tough shots, and so their ability was hidden.、Hmm. So we give teams the ability to find sort of secretly good players. What is your least favorite stat?、Uh, this is coming. <laughs> I, so I would say that every every stat had their place, and there was a reason they were invented. But I think as time goes by, you know, better better stats come along, and perhaps some stats should perhaps. Retire.、Uh, I mean, I think the obvious one, and I think I agree with it, is is wins in baseball. I think that when I looked into the history of it, there was a reason that it came about because was, you want to attribute the the players' performance to more than just their individual performance, but to team performance. And so the goal was was reasonable. But I think we have much better ways of measuring that now. And I think sort of adding that to the conversation can confound things. So there are things like, especially in baseball, things like wins and RBIs、mm-hmm. that that we can add more context to. And I think that's really what data is allowing us to do is. Before we had the ability to have context, the box score—that's we had to go with that because that's what the box score allowed us to do. But with all this tracking data, we can just add a lot more context. You don't just have to look at shots made or shots missed. You can look at all this data about the context of a shot. Same thing with、uh, with baseball. You know, you can take all the data they have right now, add a lot of context, and you can really figure out who's contributing to a win more or less, other than the, the classical definition.、Right. So. Is there a stat or an insight that you want to have that isn't there yet? Something like, I guess, real-time in-game analytics, something along those lines. So I think real-time in- in-game analytics is both a reality and it's going to more, get more and more spread over the next couple of years. So I'm I'm excited about just making that happen and、mm-hmm. being part of that process.、Um, and so I think it's going to be transformational. I think we've already seen that the way coaches who've been in the league for 30 years before there was even video are. You know, being influenced by machine learned data, we're seeing how broadcasters are talking about shot probabilities、uh, on national TV. So things are changing、um, a lot. For me personally, the thing that I think 
I love the data. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna enjoy sort of working with it over the next several years and seeing all the great things that come out. Um, what's a little bit out of reach, I would love to know the mental states of all the players and how those are evolving. I think that is not so yeah. easy to get accurately, uh, and I don't know if and how we'll get there. But for me, that's something I always wonder about. That that I don't. I think it is a bit out of reach at the current time. But I think there's so much to be gotten out of the movement data. We are not even. We're sort of a a sliver on the tip of the iceberg in terms of what we're right. going to be able to do. And it's going to be really exciting to see what's going to come out of it over the next you know, decade or so. That's really interesting because yeah. you see so much of people trying to process body language and things like that. Yeah. Especially if you actually could have some insight yep. into it. Um, last, question, last question for you. You mentioned the science of moving dots yep. before. How do you see that expanding beyond sports? Well, I mean, I think that... It's a fundamental thing. In fact, before we got into sports, uh, you know, uh, my colleague Yuhan Chang and I were faculty at USC and our research group was all about moving dots. And we studied, you know, social media, geo-track uh, uh, geo social media. We tracked uh, vehicles, people, mobile games. There's a lot of data coming out. And with, with sensors getting cheaper, there are factories and hospitals and devices and people being tracked, um, homes being, you know, uh, being tracked. And I think there's a, a big emergence of movement data. And I think that what we found was that there was no science of moving dots. And if there was, it would transform everything, cities, homes, um, how we interact with each other, how we operate our businesses. Uh, we just found that sports had to happen to have really great data. And that was a great place to build this science. But I think that what comes out of sports, the, the methodologies, the techniques uh, are going to affect all aspects of our life because, we're, you know, we're moving everywhere and we're tracking that movement now for the first time at scale. And so we'll be able to understand lots of aspects of our life that we were never able to understand before. And it's going to be transformational. Great. Thank you for being with us. Oh, it was a pleasure. Rajiv can be reached through his Twitter handle at Rajiv Mahaswaran. Now, here's Claudia Perlick. You have a session that's titled, How Big Data is Killing Your Favorite Metrics. How is data undermining established metrics? The very interesting development right now is that with a lot of very rich data and powerful algorithms for predicting, I can predict things that I wasn't able to, and sometimes they aren't what they're supposed to be. And what happened in those cases that uh, the prediction leads us astray. My example for this was the click, which is a very established metric that uh, people invented at the birth of advertising in the internet as a way of tracking whether their campaigns were successful, whether they were reaching the right audience. So what would you expect the metric to do? The whole point is you can't really measure what you're interested in, right? I mean, you can't see people buy, mm -hmm. or at least you couldn't because you didn't have e-commerce back then. So the click became a proxy. But the reality is, you know this yourself, for every intentional click, how many accidental ones were there? Mm. Yep. And in the day and age of non-big data, it didn't matter. Because if we both are equally accidental about our clicks, but when I do mean it, I click more often, then overall the metric of higher click-through rate indicates that I'm probably more interested. What happens with big data? I can predict the accidentals the model will be able to figure out that maybe you forgot to, your reading glasses or you're actually right now on the flashlight app and you're fumbling in the dark. So the contextual information becomes so predictive that if I force the algorithm to optimize towards click very soon, I will only target people on the flashlight app or <laughs> who lost their reading glasses, <laughs> none of which is interested in your product. Uh, right. Not much to build a business on, right? Those are not the cohorts you're necessarily looking for. Um, is there a way to know when your long-used metrics need to be refined or retired? Are there warning signs that come with that? 
the first warning sign I would always look for, if it looks too good to be true, then mm. chances are it is. So if you are able to double a metric, and we're really talking about human behavior, and people are unpredictable, it's not that easy to manipulate them either, right? At that moment, you want to step back and say, is that really even possible? And the other point, the trick I mentioned, only works for one metric at a time. I can only make one metric look good. It's very, very hard to, at the same time, optimize click-through rate, viewability, and post-view conversion. So having a bit of a skeptical take and look at the combination of different metrics, each of those is very susceptible to be kind of over-optimized, but as a combination, it's very, very hard to do that. Interesting. How do you see data shaping metrics over the short term, over the next two years or so? On the upside, of data impacting the way we look at metrics, we can, in fact, measure a lot more of what's relevant. Why did we have the click? Because it was easy and we couldn't really trace the exposure to the ad to then a post-view mm -hmm. purchase. That has gotten a lot better already. So now, for the most part, we are actually able to say, yes, it was that same cookie that it got exposed that now is purchasing the product we were looking for. Right. It's a lot harder for offline versus online. So ads were seen online, but the purchase happens offline. But even there with um, cross-device linkage where you associate even probabilistically, you're probably the same person. And if sure. not, maybe it was your wife, but that's good enough. Sure. So data enables us to string together kind of coherent path of purchase or human behavior. And that helps for the most part to trace it back to things that actually aren't proxies, but the real thing you're interested in, the person buying the product, the person going to the car dealership instead of just accidentally sure. taking some action that looks as if it was relevant. So if data is undermining some of these established metrics, how do we work across the industry with metrics? And I'm thinking of just things like, you know, the old uh, battles between, you know, first it was hits, then it was page views, now it's right. uniques. But truly, there's so much nuance within each of those metrics. And now what you're suggesting is that you unpack it even further. And sometimes you don't like what you're going to find. How do we have conversations, not just within organizations, but across organizations mm -hmm. related to just established metrics? I think the most important part is to step back and make sure we're all on the same page mm -hmm. when it comes to incentives. Right. One of the biggest hurdles in advertising is there are just too many siloed participants all just measure each other on the intersection on some single one metric. And only by integrating back from the brand all the way to the likes of us who deliver creatives to the consumer and having a tight integration of what do you really want to achieve? Mm -hmm. And please don't tell me CPA, but <laughs> can we actually look at data and sure. see... Does exposure change behavior? Because that's not even a question that we can answer today. And then embrace the modern uh, technologies to not just look at panels, but going back to kind of the individual level traces to be able to attribute correctly what really changed people's action or at least probabilities thereof. Do you think that it's headed in that direction, though, of fundamentally asking that question of what is it you really want to achieve? It starts becoming this conversation when you get into the same room with the brand who actually wonders whether the money is well spent. Mm -hmm. So, or having the support of agencies and kind of long-standing partnerships and themselves not being threatened by yet the newest metrics uh, on the market and an honest conversation of how can we help you? Because often I'm at the back end of it where I'm sitting, where I just have to execute it, I know very well that 
I can make this metric look good, sure. but it won't do you, it would actually do you a lot of harm. And on the opposite, I could do it right. But as long as I'm measured in a way that I'm off the plan two months later because I fail on the prescribed metric, it's very hard for me to kind of maintain my moral standing and, and being in business and trying to solve the right problem. So do you anticipate that that's going to shift though? So or, I, or are people going to keep latching on to just a number for the sake of a number? I think marketing in brands is under tremendous pressure to prove their value. Because mm -hmm. there's the illusion just because you have data now, uh, everything should be easy, right? In the old days, we didn't know which 50%. Why can't we do it today? I think having some more level set expectations of where is the right level um, of what can be proven and what has to be intuitively agreed upon is probably right. And even if you get it right enough, I talk to agency who feel, I try all these different vendors and once one looks better and the next time the other one looks better and it's a continuous race without any converging to anything. I mean, look, you probably got the right five on the plan. Does it really matter whether they are the absolutely best five or are you already within like the top 3% and take a little bit of the pressure of this constant proving back and saying, that sounds like a sufficient good solution. Maybe sure. we can just make peace with that and focus on the bigger questions, whether we are actually <laughs> really driving an impact. <laughs> Is this having any outcome? Um, what's your take on all these ad blockers that are popping up now? Uh, well, first off, my attitude is ad blocking has been around for a long it time. Has, yes. It sure is not a very new uh, development. My slightly cynical but consistent with my uh, conversation so far view is maybe we brought this upon ourselves. Part is the conversation about viewability. It used to be fine that in the middle of a TV show, it was understood that some people actually went to the restroom or got themselves a coffee. And that was fine. Not every ad was seen. Mm -hmm. The same held for print media. But now enters digital and all of a sudden everything has to be viewable and putting pressure on publishers to create sites that are so, sites that are so terrible to use that even the least tech-friendly person finally figures out how to install an ad blocker. So it comes back to are we pushing the system too hard in just a single-minded direction and lose sight of the fact that, yes, as publishers and advertisers, we are responsible for the customer experience. And very little, for instance, has been thought about this in what I can see video advertising. You see the exact same spot 20 times in a row when you're watching Hulu. Why is yes. that? Why yes. can't we better? This is not even, like, yep. it is obvious that this can't be possibly right. Comes back to a metric problem. Video is still measured, as is TV, in audience. Meaning if you want to show it to a middle-aged soccer mom, I am a positive 20 times in a row without considering what that does to my enjoyment instead of thinking about maybe I want to show her one or two and then change it up a little bit. So mm -hmm. as advertisers, we also have to take responsibility for the co consumers we ultimately want to reach. It's more than just our product. It's making sure as an ecosystem we can sustain this moving forward and still allow for free content that ultimately is financed from the advertising industry. Last question for you. What people or projects are you following these days? So I'm very much interested to bring together the technology that I see is readily available and see how it could bring to bear in the nonprofit sector. And um, I'm very involved in a number of groups here in New York City. There's DataKind and you always see Jake uh, speaking here. 
There are groups like um, Data and Society. There is Data Pop working with Rockefeller and uh, MIT. What I find interesting is kind of a slight separation between these different perspectives. And I would like to be a facilitator in the conversations and bring them together and maybe because or despite the fact that I work for advertising, bring some of the views to bear to those applications, what we have learned works and what maybe we shouldn't be trying to do. Great. Well, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. You can reach Claudia through her Twitter handle at Claudia underscore Perlich. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, remember to subscribe through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. <laughs>